Welcome to the Nation's Blind Podcast, presented by the National Federation of the Blind, the transformative membership and advocacy organization of blind Americans. Live the life you want. Hello, and welcome to the Nation's Blind Podcast. I'm Melissa Riccobono, and I'm here with... Neil Lewis. And yes, you are Melissa Riccobono. Welcome back, Melissa. Well, thank you. It's been a little while. I had a nice vacation. But I'm really excited about today's podcast. Well, before we get to today's podcast, come on, you and oh, the family yeah. packed up and traveled to Wisconsin and had time. We did. How did that work out? It worked out well. We nice. were gone for two weeks and I'm a little tired. I kind of feel like I need a vacation from my vacation um, <laughs> a little bit. Then my you did niece it right. got married. I can't believe I'm old enough to have a niece that's old enough to get married. But it was a beautiful <laughs> wedding, gorgeous day. And I got to see family and I got to see friends. I got to see one friend in particular that I have not seen since 1998. Oh, wow. And it was great to connect with her and her partner. And Very nice. it was just, it was a really nice trip. Got to stay with my mom and the house where I grew up and all sorts of things. And, you know, yeah. more things and, change, more things stay the same kind of, you know. It was, it was, and did you get some like cheese curd? Oh, I got some delicious cheese curds, both fresh ranch flavored cheese curds from Kramer's Dairy, our favorite (laughs) little dairy in Waterton, Wisconsin, where I grew up. And also deep fried cheese curds, both from Culver's and Uh from Cousin Subs. And I have to say, Cousin Subs deep fried cheese curds are even better than Culver's. They are delicious. I mean, it's deep fried. Everything's better deep fried. Well, it is, but Culver's are also deep fried, but Cousins wins hands down. They are squeaky and salty, but deep fried and they now, are. Now, delicious. Melissa, hold on now. They're not sponsoring the podcast. Hold that. Hold I that know. Part. I know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. You asked how it went, though. That's that's how yeah. I felt like I ate my way through Wisconsin. <laughs> I also had custard. It was good. It was a very good time. Now, Excellent. now I have to walk and, you know, get back into eating right. And I was just right before we started recording this ordering school supplies for all of my children who are going back to school, high schooler, sixth grader, and fourth grader here. Nice. Going Um, to school. That's that's a good segue to what we're talking about here. Uh, Believe it or not, we go from squeaky cheese, but um, (laughs) the the person that we have on our podcast today was instrumental in helping me continue to live the life I want, because many of you may remember I lost my sight at age 25. I was working, but working on my college degree at the time. And my vision went so quickly over the weekend that I could no longer read my computer screen or anything like that. And had it not been for this gentleman and the individuals that work with him to develop the product that I'm pretty sure many, if not, well, most of our listeners, if not all are familiar with, and that's Jaws, Job Access with Speech. And I'm, a, I'm an old user from Jaws 1.2 for DOS. So it's really <laughs> nice to have evolved with this. So we have with us today, listeners, Mr. Ted Hinter. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ted. How are you? Nice to be here. Thank you. So Thanks glad you could join us. Now, you're, you're down in Florida now, right, Ted? Yes. St. Okay. Petersburg, Florida. It's just, just about 20 miles south of Tampa. Excellent. Well, I just want you to know, no pressure, but when we had Dean Blazy on a podcast a few episodes ago, there was a lot of people who really, either through nostalgia or through, you know, current utility of the different refreshable braille displays that are out there, really thought that it was a good podcast. So you, you got to, you know, that's a benchmark to meet in this podcast. So no pressure. The pressure's on. I can feel it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're quite up to the pressure, but there really is no pressure. We really invited you here to hear your story. We know that you've done a lot of things in your life, but really what we'd like to talk most about, of course, is the development of JAWS and sort of how that 
took place, why you decided yeah. you needed to develop something like Jaws and how you made it possible. Before you start there, though, just to get a flavor for who you are, why don't you give our listeners a taste of who is Ted Hinter? <laughs> well, I'm 70 years old. Oh, you're just a baby. I was born and raised in the Panama Canal Zone in Central America. Hmm. Went through high school and junior college there. Uh, went to the University of Florida. I have a mechanical engineering degree. I was a professional motorcycle racer back in the 70s. Wow. I was on pole position at Daytona. I was second at Talladega. I won the Grand Prix of Canada. Wow. I was the fourth at Daytona one year. I was eighth in the Venezuelan Grand Prix. So I was at the top level of motorcycle road racing. And now that uh, I did not know. Thank you for sharing that. But I don't see the connection with that and, and what led you to <laughs> creating Well, Jaws. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to it. <laughs> so I was in, in England on my way to Spain for the second race of the year. And I was leaving the racetrack one evening, going back to my buddy's flat, they call it. Mm-hmm. And I forgot you're supposed to drive on the left side of the road <laughs> in England. And I forgot to put on my seatbelt. So I crashed into another car. It was my fault. I hit the windshield, cut my eyes and my face. Wow. And the other people in the other car, they were okay. They had their seatbelts on. A couple of them spent the night in the hospital. I heard some yelling and screaming. Mm. I spent about six weeks in the hospital over there. And then I had to come back here for an operations. And so anyway, I was blind. Now, at that point in time, I had a mechanical engineering degree. So I, ha- I had an education but I knew nothing about blindness and there was no technology for the blind. My division of blind services counselor indicated to me that computer programming was, was a pretty good field for blind people just getting started. I said, well, that's cool. I'll go back to school. So I went back to, went back to school, learned a little bit about programming, not much. State of Florida bought me a total talk from Dean Blazy. Hmm. So Dean and his wife came down in the middle of winter and uh, installed it and taught me how to use it. I thought, gee, that's awfully nice of the owner of the company to come to do this. Well, it was the middle of winter, and it was a free trip to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Clear that out later. (laughs) Nice. So a friend of a friend gave me a job at his hotel. That was my first job as a blind person. So anyway, I kept calling Dean and Mike Romeo, the guy that invented the Romeo Brailler, Mm -hmm. because I had problems with the terminal. Why doesn't it do this? Why doesn't it do that? Can I do this? Can I do that? So after about a year and a half of that, Dean offered me a job. So we moved up to Maryland, my wife and I, and a six-month-old baby girl. And so really my uh, career in access technology, I owe to Dean Blazy because he really got me started. And Romeo, too. They were the two really smart guys at that company. And there was a couple other really smart ones. So by asking questions and reading books that they gave me, you know, I, I became a programmer. Mm. Now, I didn't read the books. My, I go home at night, and my wife would read them to me. Oh, wow. Because that was even before we had a talking PC. Right. It was, just, it was just a terminal that you hooked up to a mid-sized computer. So that went good. And then I worked with Dino, what we called the Information Through Speech, the ITS. And that was a terminal with a built-in CPM computer. So then, then I could actually read disk and stuff like that. And then we worked on the Total Talk PC, which was a DOS computer. So that's how I got, got started. And I think I skipped over a part there, but, but the main part was I had a technical education and computer programming sounded pretty good. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the guidance from my counselor 
and a few breaks along the way. Like my wife's employer's husband offered me a job. He owned a couple of hotels. I always like to say you need to be prepared because opportunity will knock and you have to be ready for it. So I was ready for it. I had these good advice from my counselor. I had a very generous offer from this guy who owned the hotels. I met Dean Blazy. I wouldn't say I was prepared to go to work for him, but I worked hard at it when I got there. And of course, he's a great guy. And mm-hmm. yeah, But that, that's how I got started. Dean got me started into access technology. And a guy named Tim Kramer, a famous NFBer, he got Dean started in access technology. So right. it's not always what you know, but who you know. <laughs> it's, it's really cool, though, that this whole cluster of names, you know, this comes up so much, especially around the birth of what I consider kind of, you know, that birth of access tech. Yeah, a lot of key people. Remind right. our listeners who might be a little bit younger, what year approximately, I'm guessing early 80s, correct, when all this sort of got started? Yeah, 81, I went to work for Dean. And so I, th- I think I started using a talking computer in 79. And then Dean's company went out of business, if you can believe that. It was called Maryland Computer Services. And they made the Kramer Modified Perkins Brailler. And it was a, a Perkins Brailler with solenoids and a computer in it. And unfortunately, it, it broke a lot. So that was a money-losing proposition, and the company went out of business. And so I, w- I was working for anybody else that needed computer training. And that's how I met Bill Joyce. He was blinded in an accident. Anyway, I trained him on a a couple different times, and it was his idea to start a company, Bill Joyce. So I said, well, great, but I don't have any money. He says, well, I'll pay for it, and you run the company. I mean, you can't beat a deal like that. Well, I always wondered where the, the mystery of the Hinter Joyce, you know, never you know, heard. Think of a name. We, we, we had a couple different names we wanted to use, but I forget what they are. But finally, we just decided, well, we'll just use our last names. And since I was going to run the company, he put me first. So it's just a lot of good luck, a lot of good fortune in my life that even though I was blinded, I had a lot of help along the way to get to really get things rolling. Hmm. Melissa was asking about the time period. I worked for Dean from 81 to 85, and then a couple of years just doing some consulting and training for Division Blind Services, and then met this guy, Bill Joyce. So we started our company in 87, and that's when I thought of the name Jaws, and nobody liked it when I first mentioned it. Now, was, was the movie out then? I don't remember. When did Jaws, the movie, yeah. come out? Oh, yeah, the movie was out in the mid-70s. And there was a product on the market called Flipper. It was a DOS screen yeah. reader. I remember Flipper. And I remember the TV series Flipper, too. Yeah. So the, the movie Jaws actually was kind of the catalyst for you to call it Job Access with Speech? Yeah, yeah. Nice. I was joking around with, with my friend Jack Gilson. Oh, now, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you really quickly. Jack Gilson is a very dear friend of mine. He, um, in the Georgia Rehab Agency, was the access tech man when I was coming through as a consumer. And we formed a relationship and were colleagues as I became a professional in the space. And he he retired a few years ago. I still need to reach out to him as a matter of that. I didn't know that Jack was part of this whole team. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, he, he worked for Dean also. That's how I met him. And then he worked for my company for a little bit. I agree with you. He's a great guy. So I was yeah. joking out with him one day and I said, hey, let's call it Jaws. It eats flipper. <laughs> so nobody liked that idea. When I say nobody, there's like three, three people in the company. There was Jack, there was my wife, and Rick Skipper, our programmer. Hmm. So, but then I thought, oh, job access was deep. And you won them over. Uh, it, it took about a month for people to <laughs> 
were, were there other names out there? Were other people saying, oh, no, we should call it such and such? Or was Jaws really the only contender at the time? We had stupid names like PC Tongue. And we were going <laughs> to use, we use the Rolling Stones. Uh, what was it? I think a big pair of lips or something. One of the Rolling Stones albums. <laughs> wow. And it was, uh, there was uh, Arctic Technologies had a product out. Telesensory had a product out. Mm-hmm. IBM had a product. IBM was just called Screen Reader. Well, it can't beat that. Anyway, that's the short version of how that'll all That's, that's funny. We could have all been using PC Tongue. Yep. <laughs> all these years. Then we'd have laughed at Jaws. Oh, Jaws, that's silly. <laughs> now we're laughing at PC Tongue. You know, but I, I love Jaws. You know, there's so much you can do. I love your foam sharks that have been given away and the the cookie you know, jar Jaws was my cookie jar yeah, yeah. i mean there you know there's just so many great things about jaws except it is kind of funny every time i tell my daughter's teachers that they'll be using jaws i always have to say job access with speech and kind of explain <laughs> what it yeah. is but it's yeah. a great name well eric damry you know he's still there at the sparrow yeah he came to work for henter joyce in the early 90s and he's the guy behind the jaws candy jar and the little foam sharks i believe that that, I'm, I'm, it makes perfectly good sense now. I, I believe that. We had a shirt uniform that, that somebody would wear at the convention and walk around the, the convention floor. Now that I did not know. Shoulders and that was really fun. We got to resurrect that. We got to find that uniform. Yeah. yeah. I'm not wearing it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to wear it. Yeah. So you work together and you you created jaws um and that was just for dos at first right and then windows came along you know what was that transition like because wasn't there a lot of worry that the windows environment really wasn't going to be able to be usable by screen reader users people that were blind yes absolutely right dean saw the uh the macintosh Mm. he was just blown away by the you know, the touch screen, the Windows sort of screen. He said, I don't know how we're ever going to make this talk. <laughs> well, the, and then he went out of business and he started working on the, the Braille and Speak. So I did the DOS version with a, my programmer was Rex Skipper, young guy right out of college. And he got a better job. And we hired Chuck Opperman. And we had some idea how to do it, but really we got ideas from IBM. You know, a guy named Jim Thatcher, he was one of the pioneers. Hmm. And Berkeley Systems. Uh, a guy named Peter Korn. <laughs> they, they had a system. For, Don't, is it the same Peter Korn that now Amazon fame? Yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. Man, I didn't know that all these guys were that active back then. And I know Jim Thatcher's name, but I can't place it. Yeah. Yes, you know, to give them credit, we, we learned a lot from the IBM guys and from Peter Korn. Nice. And Peter wanted to sell us his system. You know, we, we could use his code hmm. but uh, i made a decision that if we're going to be in the software business we got to have our own we got to develop ourselves because that way you're more in control absolutely. you don't want to be you don't want to be dependent on somebody else for a technical product like this absolutely so we struggled chuck opperman worked on it for a while and then i met with glenn gordon at one of the csun conferences because he lived in la he was a customer a uh, jaws for dos customer and Real sharp guy, and he's blind. Yeah, he is sharp. He started doing some part-time work for us, and then Chuck got a better better offer from Microsoft. So Chuck was gone, 
And then I talked to Glenn into coming on full time with us, even though he's still working at UCLA. So Glenn's the guy that really made Jaws for Windows work. He figured it out. Yeah. Uh, got some uh, guidance from Jim Thatcher at IBM and Peter Korn. Just and, as an aside, though, Glenn, I was doing a, a job modification for some customer service representatives over at Wachovia National Bank, and we were having problems with the IBM interface. And it was so funny. I tried everything. I just couldn't get it to work, couldn't get the terminal to work and connect with the server, et cetera. And I called Glenn up. It was just such an easy, easy fix. He just told me I needed to change the cursor. And once I did that, everything worked just smoothly. But he, he, know, he knew all that stuff, you know, back, backwards yeah. and forwards. Very impressive. Yeah, yeah he's, he's uh, the best programmer I've ever worked with. Hmm. He's a very smart guy. So he was the reason for our technical success. And Eric Damery was the reason for our sales and marketing success. Yeah. And there's another guy named Jerry Bowman, who I met at, at a, a board meeting for a local training center for the disabled. And I was having problems with the company, the personnel. He offered to work for me for free. And he ended up firing. There's only eight people at the time. He ended up fire, firing four people. <laughs> And hiring some others to replace him. So he he pretty much was the general manager and chief operating officer of the wow. company. And at first he just, he worked for free. He was retired. He worked for free and he kept looking for somebody to take his place. And finally I said, well, why don't you just do the job? We'll pay. <laughs> so he worked for Henry Joyce for another eight years, I think it was. Great, mm. great guy. And, and he pretty much ran the company that was dealing with all the, the personnel issues. That was his forte was human resources. So it takes a lot of people <laughs> to make a company like that work. And especially, well, like me, I was an engineer. I didn't, I didn't know anything about business, sure. but we learned mm-hmm. as we went. You knew, you knew enough about business to surround yourself with people with expertise in areas that you needed. And uh, I think that is really a true testament to the success of the product. You, you put things in perspective that I hadn't thought about. That there was other competition out there. There was kind of a beta VHS environment and, and Jaws won out. So yeah. that's a testament to you at least managing right. it in a way that brought all of that skill set to bear. Well, and I think also, I mean, the, the biggest theme that I also noticed throughout this is that you had a lot of blind people that were actually using the product. And I mean, mm. you even got hired by Dean because you kept calling him and saying, hey, could it do this? Why won't it do that? Yeah. You know, we needed to do this. And I, I'm assuming that that's still what drives some of the features in JAWS today. The consumer reaching out to the Sparrow and saying, hey, we yep. need it to do this or we need it to do that or the whole transition from DOS to Windows, pe- people were saying, hey, I use your product, but you know, we're going to be moving to Windows. We're not going to be able to be on DOS forever. I still miss DOS with WordPerfect. I'm just going to say. Oh, yes, but anyway, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, I've gotten over it. I, I you know, <laughs> use Microsoft Word and I use Windows. But I mean, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because it just seems like you were able to surround yourself also with very smart, very capable blind people that really were able to make it not just this is what we think JAWS should do, you know, in a sighted perspective, but, you know, no, this is really what JAWS should do. And this is really the way that's going to make it the easiest or that we think is going to make it the easiest. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We were very receptive of advice from our customers. And that's how when I started out with Dean in 81, I was a programmer, but not a very good one. 
but also did the technical support. So every time we sold the talking terminal, I'd be on the phone for hours doing mm. technical support. So I kind of, let's say, grew up doing technical support, doing a little bit of programming, and also figuring out the user interface. Mm-hmm. So I went with JAWS. I think it started, well, I know it started with Dean. We, quote, invented, unquote, the speech pad using the numeric pad to read the screen. And with Dean, we, he and I invented the dual cursor design. Other products, you had a review mode. Mm-hmm. Once you went in the review mode, you could read around the screen like with a JAWS cursor. Yeah, we had we had a mouse long before sighted people, you know, with that <laughs> JAWS cursor. Yeah. Yeah. So we, quote, invented some things that are kind of standard today. When we got to the point where we had to make some decisions about JAWS for Windows, do we want to reinvent the user interface or stick with the JAWS for DOS user interface? You know, the two cursors, the numeric pad, speech pad, up arrow, down arrow, left arrow, right arrow, all that stuff. Using the insert key as like a shift mm-hmm. key. Those are all in JAWS for DOS. And other people were coming out with their Windows versions, but they changed their user interface. Windowize comes to mind about that. Yeah. And anyway, we... We had a lot of talk, Glenn and I and Eric and several other people in the company. How are we going to do this? Well, with Glenn and his brilliance, he figured out how to read the data on the screen. And then we agreed to just stick with the the user interface that we're already familiar with. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. And it came out pretty good. In January of 1995 was our first public display of the product. Yeah, Windows 3.1, I think, was the operating system. I think you're right. I think you're right. We had had 20 people coming into St. Petersburg for training, and we rented a bunch of computers. We had had everybody in a motel. And I think out of 20 computers, three of them crashed each day. Wow. It wasn't wasn't real solid. Yeah, it sounds like Windows, though. Windows crashed a lot (laughs) in the early days. I remember that very clearly. (laughs) So if if we didn't reinstall JAWS every day, it would crash. Mm. Wow. It would crash because something about the memory management. Those were shaky days, but JAWS was successful mainly, well, I was going to say mainly, but that's not mainly. But we did come out about six months before the main competition, which was Window Eyes. So we got a jump on Window Eyes, mm-hmm. and they never actually caught up, as far as I, I can tell. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think there were more people probably that used JAWS for DOS than that used Vocalize. You know, they just it's it was that, but definitely that was that was the main competition. But um, yeah. you know, you were obviously there to stay and are still i mean there's all there's many other options out there but still jaws is is the the one that if you're really going to get the most out of your computer i've heard over and over jaws is really what you need to learn and jaws is still that standard so we've come so far you know what are your thoughts yeah. about all the technology that we have now and what do we need to keep doing or what you know what are your thoughts about this explosion of technology, what we need to keep doing to make sure we have access to all the technology, um, any thoughts about, you know, new things we might need or things we need to pay more attention to as, as everything's moving along? Good question. I'm not really up to speed on all the technology, what has to be done, but I, I don't think that's a problem. I think that technology, if it hasn't been solved by the screen reader gurus, 
it will be. I don't think the technical aspects are the problem. The problem is, the way I see it, is we have already explained how web pages should be written, how software should be written so it's accessible. That's been out there for two decades mm-hmm. or more. The problem now is that a lot of developers don't follow those guidelines. So there's a lot of things that are not accessible. Even the uh, Southeastern Guide Dogs, I've told them three or four times, you know, a graphic link doesn't do it for me. I need text. But, yeah. and, they're, and they're geared to a web page for blind people. New Gingrich, he has a newsletter that goes out frequently. A lot of graphics in that that are, you know, a graphical button, a graphical link. Hmm. Hulu, you know, the TV guys, Hulu and Peacock, hmm. something new that I've I've subscribed to because I like to listen to the Formula One racing all over the world and I can get it on Spectrum, Hulu and and Peacock. But a lot of those things are like there's a graphic button, but it doesn't say that it's a button. It doesn't announce itself as a button. It just says graphic. And only by trial and error can you figure out, oh, that's the one that mutes the sound or that's the one that that goes live. Yeah, so you don't want to, by mistake, hit the one that formats all of your hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what that does. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a lot of, I think that's the issue we have now. It's spreading the word that this is the way it's supposed to be done. And I, I don't know exactly how to do that, but I was doing some research on it today, preparing for this interview. And ADA and 508 guidelines have been out there for decades also. Maybe not two decades, but certainly a decade. And that is if you want to sell your product to the U.S. government, your web pages and, and documentation and software need to be accessible. And that's right there. Well, yeah, that's well and good because the U.S. government enforces that. And it's one of the largest customers. Yeah. yeah. So something like that might be what we should start looking in. Excuse me, looking into the politics of it. It's the politics. Now, I don't want our government telling our software developers how to do their job. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't mind if they did a little something extra to enforce the fact that these guidelines for accessibility should be followed. Yeah. Or, or Absolutely. You know, sometimes what happens is they'll say, well, it's 99% accessible. It's just, you know, it's just the stuff for the screen reader that's, <laughs> that's not done, you know, and, and it's, that's not all the way accessible. And that's in educational products as well. School systems are also, and colleges are supposed to purchase only products that are accessible for everybody, staff, students. And it happens all the time with my two daughters that are blind, that they're supposed to use something in school and it's not accessible. And, you know, yeah, you can find workarounds, but it's very, very frustrating, particularly during the pandemic and and during online school when classmates had easy, ready, super quick access to tons of books. And, you know, our girls had access to books because of Bookshare, but didn't have access to the same titles in the same app using their Braille displays as their classmates did. And and it was just the company that was lagging behind. I mean, there's, like you said, everything's out there. They shouldn't be selling products to schools that that aren't fully accessible, but they are. And and that is just as a parent and as a, a person who lives in the world, it frustrates me all the time when I come across things that are not accessible to me. Um, and it happens pretty much on a, a daily or at least a weekly basis. And it's just silly because there's really no reason right now that that should be the case. Let me thank you, Ted, for anointing Melissa and I with this great honor that you didn't even know that you did. I think 
you were the first guest that ever had to do research before appearing on the podcast. So the fact <laughs> that you did research lets us know that we're hard hitting journalists and interviewers that you felt that you had to be prepared for our hard questions. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, I'm, Chris, I'm Chris got me going on it. He sent me a he sent me a list of questions he was going to ask. Yeah. So, so I started writing stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> had to intimidate it. Yeah. We don't mess around, man. We're we're the nation's blind podcast. We don't mess around. <laughs> I was complaining about all this software that's not accessible, but what we really need to come up with is the solution. I heard about the 508, and that's one solution, but I, I don't know how we're going to reinforce that or enforce it. Mm-hmm. So what else do y'all want to know? What's the difference between offering a framework, right, that people can work on so that they can make sure it is more universally usable across platforms and putting such strict you know, requirements, regulations in place that it stifles innovation. And I think that's what we're trying to balance, finding that balance. I, I'm curious about this. And this wasn't one of Chris's questions. So right now, uh, when we talk about JAWS, right, and I, I agree with what Melissa said earlier, I have found no real substitute, you know, in those areas, especially when you're talking about employment because of the power and the customization that's available through the JAWS and the macros, et cetera. But there's a two things happening. One, the proliferation of other kind of free, software in VDA is one. And then we also have the uh, evolution of so many screen readers that are native to the operating system. So IBM, I mean, not IBM, IBM used to have IBM screen reader. I don't think they do that anymore, but the Microsoft uh, narrator, you know, voiceover, what is your sense of whether that's going to be, that's more helpful, uh, whether it's problematic? Well, I think it's problematic actually. At one of the NFB conventions, I spoke to the computer science group, and two guys from Microsoft happened to be there. In fact, one was Chuck Opperman, who used to work for my company. Hmm. And at that point in time, Microsoft was threatening to come out with a real screen reader. And so my in my talk, I said, when that happens, it'll be free, but it's only going to work with Microsoft software. Mm-hmm. And the blind people, the customers out there are not going to get anything special, like if you work at a hotel or for the airlines. It's not going to work for that. So that was that was my point. It might be free, but it might not be any good either. Whereas alternatively, you have a company like Hunter Joyce or GW Micro screen readers. That is our business. That's the only business. Mm-hmm. Of course, we branched out in a few other things like Braille displays. And that's what drives the fact that in this case, JAWS is very good. That was the thing we focused on. And just like it. The voiceover and talk back, I've used both of them. Mm-hmm. I'm currently using voiceover, but I think we need some screen reader developers <laughs> working on this stuff because <laughs> those touch screens are terrible. <laughs> and I, I have actually applied for a patent on what I think is a solution to that problem. And I had a couple of programmers working for me for about six months, but they just weren't getting it. They were cited young guys. I was going to say kids, but, you know, they're 30s or so. Mm-hmm. And they they just didn't get it. They didn't understand what I wanted or why I wanted it. So I dropped that. Pro- well, I temporarily dropped that. I hope to be able to hire a smart programmer to keep going on that. Sort of like a, well, sort of like a modification to the voiceover, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. These phones are moving so quickly. It's hard to keep up. And they don't have any, any real focus on the accessibility issues. Yeah, it is hard to make sure that that's a priority as the um, the systems evolve. But we're we're continuing to fight that good fight with our partnership with all of all of them to make sure that accessibility stays on the radar. You know, some days 
we have really good success and other days we may lose a few steps in this race, but we're committed as an organization to make sure that blind people have full access to it. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, th- I think that's a very important thing for the NFB to be doing. I remember back in, in 1994, well, you may not remember, but the NFB and, and others, other consumer groups got together and they started putting pressure on Microsoft to make it easier to make a Windows screen reader. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft asked a few questions. And well, in fact, Chuck Oppen was working there. So he told them, well, the hardest part is the off-screen model. So what they decided to do is to buy an off-screen model from one of the companies out there like mine that had one, and then they'll just make it part of Windows. Mm-hmm. Everybody can use it. And then you put your own user interface on top of that. Well, it was a pretty good idea, but it had the same drawbacks as I mentioned before that they're not going to focus on that. They may not you know, right. keep it up and all that. So anyway, they chose our product, the JAWS off-screen model, for a variety of reasons. I'm not sure which was the key one, but they never told us why they chose ours. But when the other vendors found out about it, they started complaining. They complained to Microsoft. <laughs> Microsoft got fed up with that and said, we don't need this. So they, they, they dropped that project. But somehow word got out that Microsoft chose our software over the others. Wow. And uh, man, sales just took off right there. You know, there's an interesting story there. Guy Chuck Ockerman worked for Hunter Joyce, and he was the brains behind the off-screen model for a while. And he met some Microsoft guys, and all his life he wanted to work for Microsoft. So they offered him a job, but he had a non-compete agreement with my company. Oh, so one of the guys, one of the Microsoft guys came to me and said, look, we want to hire Chuck. We know he has a non-compete. What do we have to do? And right away, I thought, this guy's always wanted to work for Microsoft, not Hendrick Joyce. So I said, well, we like Chuck and we're going to miss him, but you can have him. So wow. I let him out of the non-compete. Wow. And you'll see that one good turn deserves another. So at the same time, we hired Glenn Gordon and that was, uh, that's what kept us going. Win-win. Very nice. When Microsoft went through this process to decide what software to buy, well, of course, Chuck (laughs) Chuck was familiar with our software. So that was one reason we got picked. So, you know, I did him a favor and he did me a favor. That's nice. That's nice. Well, I mean, it goes to show you, as you said, one good turn deserves another. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that story. When I first decided to be a computer programmer, I said, okay. I got a college degree. I'll go back to college and I'll get a computer science degree. So I went to the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, 40 minutes away from where I live. And I had an appointment with a dean of the computer science department. I walked in there with my counselor and blah, blah, blah. And basically after about 10 minutes, he told me, I don't want any blind people in my class. I had a blind guy and it took up too much of my time doing the labs and all that sort of stuff. So I was, I was shocked. I was new at being blind and at being discriminated against. So we walked out of there with my tail between my legs and I got to thinking, well, that's one college out of about, I don't know, 30 colleges right here in Florida. And there's another one right down the street from where I lived, which was a branch campus of the one over in Tampa. So I walked in there and I just signed up and I went into class and they got me a, a high school student to read the books for me. They paid for that. And when I, I mean, the Division, of blind, Division of Blind Services paid for the reader. And I did several programming courses and 
one or two industrial engineering courses at that branch campus. But what programming language? COBOL and PL1. There you go. I think those are the only ones I did there, but I already know a little bit about Fortran because as an engineer, right? like in the early 70s, I did uh, one or two courses in Fortran. Fortran, yeah. I still think COBOL was the best programming language I ever invented, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like C myself. But... Well, yeah, because you, you evolved into that. I didn't use C very much. I like COBOL because of the requirement for all the documentation. And uh, what, what I noticed, and I came from a tradition of structured programming way back before Windows and all the GUI interface and stuff. So we, we were very, and also in that era, which you can imagine and relate to when memory was a extreme commodity, you know, having a, a meg yeah. worth of just memory for your hard drive was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Know? I was telling about not, that guy not wanting me in his course, you know, it really discouraged me, but it was only days later I thought, well, geez, there's more, more colleges. The lesson I learned from that is sometimes what looks like a roadblock is really just a direction sign. Mm-hmm. So I just had to take a yeah. different direction and keep on going. I wonder, uh, did you ever have a chance to go back to that guy and let him know <laughs> who no, you I, are and, and what you ended up doing? You know, <laughs> I, I, never I, don't know. I wish I had his name. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been nice. And like my counselor that told me about computer programming, I wish I remembered his name. As as you know, back in in those days, late 70s, early 80s, there was no technology. Like today, I write everything down, you know, on my computer. Yeah. But back then, I didn't didn't know Braille either. So I I lost a lot of information along the way. Well, thank goodness you were going through rehab at a time when the counselors had kind of more autonomy and willingness to take you know, what at that particular time must have been considered some type of risk in investing in the consumer. Hopefully we'll get back to those days someday, you know, but yeah. I'm, I'm pleased whoever it was that helped you go down that path. Yeah. And um, he was an older gentleman, you know, ready for retirement, but he was very dedicated to helping blind people. And I think the criteria at that point in time was if you had an education and a job offer, they would buy you the equipment. Yeah. So yeah, I had a job offer, and they bought me a talking terminal from Dean Blazy for six thousand dollars. <laughs> nice, and that was yeah. a lot of money. It's still a lot yeah. of money, but back then, I'm sure it was quite a bit. Yeah, that's a pretty significant investment. Yeah, you know, I, I I love the fact that you're talking about these individuals in the way that expresses your gratitude, you know, for what they did. And as I said, you know, before we started recording, I have that same degree of gratitude and appreciation for you and, you know, your life's work and, and developing and yeah, the, the, the Jaws product. And again, I, I just marvel at how humble, you know, you are. I, I noticed this when we were interviewing Dean, it, it's just the impact that you guys on have had on countless lives would, would have made me think that you were a little bit, you know, a little, little high headed, <laughs> but you both equally entertaining, fun, easy to talk to, but the humility that you demonstrate, I think is exemplary. And uh, I, I just really appreciate you for what you've done and for who you are. And I really appreciate you just echo that, but you know, it's, it's even, um, it's a little different for me because I have two blind daughters who are now also learning the technology. And so not only is it me and my husband that use it every day, but it's also our daughters and just knowing that they'll have something that can keep them competitive and keep them going as technology changes is is super important and of course being able to use a braille display 
and have both of those things, both the speech and the Braille, particularly because again, they're fourth grade and sixth grade. So we want them to be able to listen, but we also really want those words under their fingers because that's really literacy. And so Jaws just marries both of those things. So yeah. um, we definitely thank you as well for that. Hey, do you have anything you want to share with our listeners as we look at closing out the interview? Or maybe this is just part one of another, uh, but anything <laughs> you'd like to share? Well, yeah, but the humbleness, that's, that's just my personality and Dean too. Mm -hmm. we, we, we both know we're very fortunate to have ended up where we are. And one other guy I want to mention is Jim Fructerman, who mm. started, started yes. Huffingstone. Yeah. So he was always fun to be with at the conventions and stuff. And so he, he really, he really lit up that part of the industry, the uh, OCR. Yeah, that was it. I mean, between my Brillant Speak, my Jaws and my open book, I, yeah. I was able to access my college education. And Kurzweil, too, come to think of it. They were yeah, I, in OCR. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that, that Chris asked was, what products did you work on? Well, we, we had the Total Talk, the ITS, Information Loose Speech, the Total Talk PC. You mentioned that was one that you thought you might have been left leaving out earlier. Well, I did have this thing called uh, Virtual Pencil, which was a different way of doing math using a computer. And we, it did good with arithmetic addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And it did good with algebra. And our intentions were to keep going with all kinds of, well, calculus for sure, and differential equations, blah, blah, blah. Mm. It turned out that I was burning up money like crazy. We sold about, I think, 500 of them. But that's not enough to really keep you afloat. And it was hard to get the big sales, like a whole school district. Mm -hmm. Or like at a college, it wasn't really college math yet, but when we sold JAWS to colleges, like in California, the California State University system bought JAWS for all of their colleges. There must have been about 30 of them. Mm. And that's a big sale. But with the virtual pencil, we were just getting a little bit here, a little bit there, so had to give that up. But another thing off the subject of computers, when I was a motorcycle racer and an engineer, I was always tinkering and I invented and patented a wheel alignment tool for motorcycles. And my dad and I made, this is after I went blind, I did that. And my dad and I, my mechanic, we made about 500 of them and sold them. <laughs> but again, we weren't making any money and I had the opportunity to learn about computers. So I switched careers, but I still have a couple of wheel aligners around here. I was very proud about about that one. <laughs> you have any virtual pencils laying around? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Well, actually, I do. I do on my hard drive. I do and on my back. Okay. I don't have any of the packages that we used to ship out. Right. I had never heard of the virtual pencil. And I have to do a little Googling on that one. See, the cool thing about that was it, we did it the way sighted people do math. So a sighted teacher could look on the screen and see what the blind student was doing. Hmm. And then the blind student it also tutored the, the blind student because it would come up, it would give you the answer if you wanted it to. But then there was a test mode where you could go through, let's say there was 10 math questions. You could go through all of that, save it and email it to your teacher. You may not be in front of the class. The teacher might be, you know, hundred miles away. Interesting. And so you could, you could, e the teacher could email the, the work to the students and the students could email the, the finished test back to the teacher. 
That was yeah. definitely technology before its time. Would have been a great COVID virtual teaching tool today. Yeah. So, in those days, I'm talking 15 years ago. Well, actually, I patented it in the late 90s, but didn't start working on it until about 03. But it, it took a lot of skill for a sighted person to learn Braille math, and they were quite rare and valuable people. Well, when this product came along, I think it threatened a, a lot of jobs, and it never, it never really caught on. But what you said about it, it would be a good time to, for the past year, you know, being able to have that remote access. Anyway, it's out there. Anybody that wants to pick it up and run with it, because the, the patent ran out a couple of years ago. Well, there you go. You might be getting contacted by some pretty uh, ambitious entrepreneurs that want to restart something. I would, love to, I would love to restart that. I just need a smart programmer to get involved. I'm a little too old and too lazy to do any serious programming. <laughs> in the well, I'm hoping that someone feels inspired, you know, that meets that criteria and does reach out to you. And then we can all take credit that it happened here. Yeah, on the Nation's Blind podcast. Yeah, that would be great. That, the virtual pencil and my my idea for smart patent pending idea. Yeah, this has been a yeah. joy. Um, I I've been smiling throughout the whole conversation. I don't know if you've been able to hear my voice, but it is oh, indeed sure. an honor. Uh, I really do appreciate you. Again, <laughs> I, I know I keep saying it. This is a broken record, but it's true. And uh, so quick. pleased that you were able to share with us on the Nation's Blind podcast. And I'm quite sure that our listeners are really going to appreciate it too. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Liz, if you want to have fun sometime on this broadcast, get Dean and me together. That's what I said. That, that's exactly what I said to Dean. That's what we, got, I, we got some stories to tell. Well, we're going to do that. And now that it's out there, I'm sure our listeners are going to demand it of us. But All again, right. anytime I'm available, hopefully, knock on wood. Beautiful. Right. Thank you beautiful. very much. No, Talk sir. Thank later. you. We appreciate it. And we hope that all of our listeners uh, have enjoyed this as much as I have. Uh, hope that uh, you guys have learned a lot with respect to the history that we've discussed. And it's really refreshing to have individuals that have lived through that and really been instrumental in doing it uh, actually be able to voice their stories. I, I just think that that's just it makes it so much more real to me. Uh, love this. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'd love your feedback. Email podcast at nfb.org or call 410-659-9314, extension 2444.